that is the three rugby clubs. So they would train Tuesdays and Thursdays, like very, very close to each other. And there was so much rivalry in that town, man. It was, yeah. it was nuts. You're, you're not ready. You're not ready. You know, you hit it and it's like, I don't know why I'm not breaking it. Uh, let me see if I can go around it. No, can't go around it. Is there another way for me to get to my objective without dealing with this? No. I learned so much about sticking to the process over, you know, like focusing on outcomes. The first game we lost was 125 to zero. And then the next round, that team came back and they beat us like 95 to 10 or 95 to five or something. And we had the biggest, we had the biggest party in the changing room and they couldn't believe it. <laughs> I will say, if you've got a chance to experience the world in a, in, in an upfront way versus simply being able to, uh, hearsay, I, I will always consider that to be one that is successful. To dear life. And I've done things cross borders and taken huge risks. Um, and, and I mean, I mean, huge risks, not only, you know, with career wise, but with my life and, yeah. you know, with my stability and, and I, I, so I wanted to do this. So I'm going after it. I think the minute I stepped on a practice field for rugby, the calling happened. But an eight year plan to be on the team. And I was in it within two years. Don't wait until you are a pro to be a pro. Right. And I walk around with a rugby ball sometimes and they're like, what is this child on? I mean, it looks like it was a heavy. Yeah. It's up. It's not up. You know, that's the first time I played like professional. I'm making rugby money. How can I make money outside of it? And there's two Scottish guys and they said, oh, you're, um, you're here for the movie. That rugby is a game for all shapes and sizes, all cultural um, aspects. He looked at me and he says, you guys are awesome. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another great episode of Grow Rugby. My name is Gift Gift Time and Bailey. And of course, this is the show where we get to speak to people about the opportunity they have found, created, or, or taken advantage of via rugby. Y'all, man, what a heck of a weekend. Biggest congratulations to the New Zealand Black Ferns, back-to-back Rugby World Cup champions. Great game against England. Of course, number one and number two going at it again. And England just, yo, England has the wildest problem of being able to win a Rugby World Cup. I think it's got to hurt after a little bit. Like, has England won a major a major rugby tournament anytime in the last two decades. Like, I know they win game. They're always propped up as one of the best teams in the world. Uh, um, always, especially first to, first to pro, a professional and everybody's got their money and consistency in it and yet never are able to get over the top. And then people are talking about professional for New Zealand, uh, especially New Zealand black ferns, but like they, they they really only been professional for like three years and in, in, in reality it's eh, professional ish professional ish you know enough to be able to play consistently together but yo I, I I look man I can't wait until us as a country are able to I'm talking about the U S right now are able to get up to that point and start breaking and defeating because. Uh, I, I mean, I love the energy that New Zealand brings. I, I think it's real. I think it's honestly would have been better than what New Eng- what England would have been able to bring. But man, I, I I can't wait till we get our swag up. So 
2031 is is at home. All right. I mean, we probably do something a little bit before that, but I'm really looking 2031 be able to bring it home and really show out what exactly we we are about um, and that. But biggest congratulations, Ruby Tui, with a great post game speech. I mean, that was meaningful. You felt the energy. Forty two thousand people in stadium. I think I read somewhere that one point seven million who ended up watching the Rugby World Cup. So you know that's 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 good for that. Um, you know, let's let's see if we can keep bringing it up for the women's side, and then even I mean, continue bringing it up for the men's side because people are getting excited for this. And then also. Big congratulations to the U.S. I mean, in shattering uh, uh, Hong Kong and Kenya in this repache uh, for the Rugby World Cup for next year. Um, but, you know, we got Portugal. Portugal decided to, like, put a criminal act on Kenya, put up 89 points on them for no reason. All right. Just wrong. Just trying to trying to skew the point system in their favor. But uh and and look, if the US beats them and then somebody says some nonsense like, oh, the points are not enough and Portugal wins on that, I'm calling BS. Yo, if your head to head goes and both of you have the same score, the head to head is what makes a difference. F all the points. So that being said, that being said, man, uh uh first let me just say we not first, this is definitely the second. We got a great guest coming on today. That was some great news. Great guest coming on, Theo Bennett. I don't know if you haven't heard about him. This man has been coaching everywhere. He's in New Zealand, in Brazil, coached all over the U.S., all over Europe. This guy has been everywhere. This is a coaching legend. Philosophically, uh, look, I'm, I'm just philosophically legit. Uh, it, honestly, I had just met him. Basically on that, on this interview and, uh, shout out to Kamani Davis, also a guest from the pod. You can check him out. Uh, he's the one that made the connection and I, I honestly didn't really know that much about Theo, but being able to look back and then have the conversation. I mean, this guy's had a really interesting travel, almost purely rugby life, but we really got into the nitty gritty about how his way of thinking is. And I really am uh, 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 enthralled with that. He's also the owner of uh, the rugby store, um, uh, rugby Inc. So, I mean, this is a, a, a very much a Renaissance man in the rugby verse. And uh, I, it was really a pleasure getting to talk to him and, you know, being able to have the real conversations about stuff with him about rugby and life and how to go about it. So I hope you guys truly enjoy this on top of that, on top of that guys, I need you guys to go ahead and go on to HBCURugbyclassic.com and sign up for our newsletter. Yo, we got some new deals coming out. We got some great things coming. And of course you, whoever's in that, our community, HBC rugby classic, Community, the MVP community, the player of the match community gets the first come, first serve to all information, all deals, early access. I mean, it's going to be real. And the HBC Rugby Classic is coming up fast. Also, big shout out to Howard Rugby, uh, Univ- Howard University Rugby Women, 9 and 0 on the season this year, uh, this fall. Looking forward to them being able to come out and play and be able to participate in the first HBC Rugby Classic that it'll be at. But what a hell of a season for them. Big shout out to, to the, my, my, my HBCU Rugby Classic DC partners in this one. So I, I'm very, very much, uh, excited for them and, and what they They've been able to do, especially after really a year and a half, two 
two years of being in existence. That is a big accomplishment, and they got such a long runway of things that they get to go do. Like, this is early in the program. So, uh, you guys can also catch, uh, Takunda Rusiki and Catherine Aversanu. Takunda is the captain, uh, for Howard University. Catherine is the head coach. Guys can check out their interviews too, but really, really, really excellent job by them. That's, that's work real done. And that cannot be understated. Uh, that cannot be stated enough. That should not be understated. That cannot be stated enough. So, I'm really happy for them. Also, 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 y'all, please, please go check out Rugby Outlet Mall. Yo, we got our Icono Rugby shirts, these beauties, uh, as well as our HBC Rugby merch. We've dropped some new stuff. Of course, Black Friday is coming up. Christmas is coming around. You guys want to get hooked up for the Christmas time because it's going to be real. Look. We're going into 2023 hard. This is going to be the hardest one. We're out of pandemic mode. We're out of our struggle mode. Even if the people say a recession is coming, yo, a recession might be coming, but yo, rugby recession has not is not here. We're about to be real with it, and I am excited for you to be able to represent on and off the pitch, whether it's your team, whether you're repping for rugby, whether repping for the HBCU Rugby Classic, you just you're living it casually. Yo, rugbyoutletmall.com. Definitely go check it out. And of course, use promo code GROWRUGBY for 20% off all gear at the, uh, the Rugby Outlet Mall. 20%. Yo, it is an amazing first time sign up. And of course, you guys get signed up for our automatic access so you get to know what's going on. We're all about first for the people who want to be able to help. And then, of course, everybody else. Yo, we still got you because we still love you. We want you to know that you are always welcome in the community whenever you choose, whether you do it today or whether you do it tomorrow. Just know that it is for you. Uh, and so, yes. Go check it out. I, I didn't really have a good transition out of that uh, because, you know, my mind is also still on some other stuff. Today is my wedding anniversary. One full year. I'm really happy. My beautiful wife, Andrea, as we keep, keep kicking it here in Brazil. But I am excited. So this is also kind of recording a little bit earlier, which I guess is probably more of a good thing because I need to be recording earlier. But this is uh, definitely, definitely been uh, a strong, powerful, very impactful. A lot of travel, a lot of learning, a lot of love, a lot of grace. Man, it's it's good. I, I recommend if you decide to get married, uh, make sure you definitely have a partner that is willing to go through you thick and thin. Because as you get used to each other, man, you're going to get time getting used to each other. But whenever you start getting a rhythm. That's whenever that bond. This is it's like pure rugby. It's pure rugby. Everybody knows the closest bond happens whenever you're on the pitch and whenever you're on the travel, on the journey. Whenever everything is good and chilled, that's the false. That's the whenever things are like easy. That's not whenever you bond the most. It's whenever you have to work it through and 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 from there and you get better every single day, every single week, every single month. Ah. It's legit. I am I am stoked for it. So I'm happy for it. It's gonna be a good week. And uh, guys, I'm ready for you guys to to get ready for this classic, man. I, I'm just sorry. It's everything's going through. You got Thanksgiving at the end of this month too. Ah, it's it's a good month. It's a good month to be back into. <laughs> but guys, I'm not gonna hold you back any longer. Please, by all means, get ready. Theo Bennett. Founder of Rugby Inc., coach extraordinaire, and I like to say the rugby traveler philosopher. Check it out. 
What's up, everybody? Welcome to another great episode of Grow Rugby. I got another V-I, incredible I-P. I always get these letters with my VIP person over here. He's got a new book out, Virtuitous. Virtuitous. Uh, uh, he is the runner of the rugby department. Theo Bennett, thank you so much for coming through today. Thanks for having me here, Gift. This is like a, a real, real privilege. Thank you so much. Man, Theo, you know, I one, I, I have to first say your store, uh, I love it. Uh, I've seen a lot of uh, gear getting done with it. I've seen it for years now uh, as one of the few rugby uh, actual a- athletic apparel and, and uh, accessories stores here in the U.S., or at least I've always seen it for U.S. based. So I, I don't know if it's is us based but i know i've seen it in terms of that but uh i i didn't actually know the person because behind it until you know our common friend kamani told him and he was like yeah you know he runs a real i was like oh that there's a there's a face behind this this makes so much more sense now you know and then he was telling me about the book and then obviously conversation so uh, as we've been building up to this uh i i've definitely gotten more and more interested and more and more excited about like being able to have the conversation and, and getting to know more about you as a person, because uh, yeah, you, you, you kind of, you got, you kind of have a story. I don't know. I think you feel like you should have done like maybe more of a, um, what do they call it? A biography first and then hit you. with. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I actually, actually started writing a, a biography. What's it, it's called who will tell my story. Nice. Because I grew up in New Zealand and I've traveled the world and I've lived in, you know, like so many different countries, work with so many different people. You need an anthropologist to follow through and understand exactly my footsteps and where I've gone. So I was basically a global citizen for more than 10 years. That's amazing. And I was away from, been away from, from New Zealand for 17 years in my travels. And it's been amazing. Like every kind of country, man, like I've been in the thick of it. It's been a, it's been a great journey. <laughs> Dude, I love it. And honestly, it, it it's I'll be, I'm going to be completely it's something that I've I've worked to try and do, especially because of rugby, giving so much of, um, for lack of a better word, an opening an opportunity, I think, in a unique way to be able to travel um, and, and hopefully be able to travel into some of these places that are always considered as controversial. The U.S. citizen component of it might create some, you know, little variants, but I'm hoping if I get this Brazilian citizenship, we might be able to slide through some of these countries that are not so uh, uh Open to the U.S. passport, to say the least. <laughs> okay, yeah. Like, um, Brazil is an amazing place, man. I, I spent a long time there. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. We will talk about that. But okay. before we get into all that, you know, I always like to say every superhero has their origin story. And I always love to make sure that we know where people started from. So, Theo, if you're ready, as you're ready... How did you get started with rugby? <laughs> well, it just so happens that my father was a manager of a, a rugby team and my mother was involved in the committee of a rugby club in New Zealand. Like before I was even on, oh, no, actually, I was just born when they started wow. getting involved heavily. It's in the blood um, from the oh, get-go. <laughs> mate, it, it gets better. So I have three older brothers and a sister 
and my three older brothers played for the local club and there's 10 years between me and my next brother so i'm the youngest by 10 years so i kind of came out of the wound seeing these guys everything about rugby and then as our family started to grow and mum and dad brought a few people in to stay with us from time to time they never had enough space in their house and then the rugby club was selling off their hall beside the rugby club that people used to go and eat and yeah. you know and have all their, 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 their functions in. And so my parents went and brought that part of the rugby club, put it on a truck, drove yeah. it out to home, and then attached it to the house. So in a way, I was kind of brought up half in a rugby club. And that's basically where my room was, was out the back of the rugby club. Yes. <laughs> I feel like it's like one of those situations where, you know, the rugby club, they've left their markings, their their symbolisms on the wall, and now you just forever have this, like, room full of, like, random historical symbolism around you. I don't know if that was how it was, but this is how I like to imagine it a bit. But just, like, to be able to have lit- literally a part of the club, you are, are literally a part of its 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 it's upbringing, its interior. <laughs> yeah, it's it's DNA. And then, like, so I played rugby there. The first time I played rugby was four and a half years old. Because mm-hmm. I was just tackling everything in sight and I was just into everything. And um, but you know, as as I grew up and came through that club system, we moved back to the city that I was actually born in. Mm-hmm. So I was one years old when I moved out. What was the and city I, that you were born in? Uh Tauranga. Okay. Yeah. And so I was brought basically in Tokoroa in the middle of the North Island. And then I moved back to Tauranga later on in life and I walked into this rugby club rooms. And my dad said, You should go and play rugby over there. So I was like, sweet. So I walk in there and that's actually where my brothers grew up playing. So when they were in their, you know, their, as in their childhood and then through their teenage lives, they were playing in this club and I walked in there and then straight away there was a guy and he goes, you must be a Bennett. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like people she knew me because I'm like very, very, you know, I, I look very similar to my brothers Yeah. in the way I conducted myself. And then I was just like, oh, and I go looking around the photos in the club room when I'm, you know, like I, here, here am I, you know, maybe 18 or 19 years old. And there's pictures of my brothers, like all hanging up on the wall because they did everything nice. from under eight to under 10 to everything. And like the, the amount of ancestry and attachment that I felt to that club at that time was just like blew me away. Something I didn't expect to see. You know, so forgive me on a little bit of my ignorance on it, but you know, the area that you were, I, I understand that, you know, New Zealand has a lot of space, a lot of uh, farmland. Was that kind of like the area that you lived? One of those, uh, I like to call them villages, to say the least. I, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. whether, but it, it's a village, small amount of people, but uh, uh, close knit, but it's a small amount of small population of people. Was that kind of <laughs> the area that you lived? Man, I grew up in a place called uh, Tokoroa and and there's like 2,000 2, people that live there. Wow. And we had three rugby clubs and those well because that's that's like it's rugby man like (laughs) you either you either yeah you either worked in the in the forestry you were a farmer you might have worked in town or the local local mill or you were involved in some maybe gang life at that time in in the in the 80s in the early 80s and so rugby is where people would find their commonality and sort things out and like i grew up seeing my brother's there's a place that I call, I nickname the Velodrome, and it's got these really high banks around the outside of a field that sits in the middle. And then yeah. around that is the three rugby clubs. So they would train Tuesdays and Thursdays, like very, very close to each other. 
and there was so much rivalry in that town, man. It was yeah. it was nuts. And like I, I just grew up watching my brothers play through that, and so it was like such a small community. Was as you mentioned, you know, there, there's these three elements that you get, you grow up. Did your brothers end up also being into one of those farmer or yeah, like those really really successful farmers? Yeah, nice. Yes, and, and in that, you, you know, obviously with a ten year difference, that's 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 basically a generational difference for for all intents and purposes. Um, was watching them. And seeing what they've done on the pitch, how they interact with the community, how much did that end up going into the process of, I guess, leading to you being able to exit out? Because a lot of times it seems that you find yourself, a lot of people will find themselves falling into the same pathway as a family. And especially one that's such a difference, it's you either kind of choose where you see this is what I'm going to do or... I've seen everything that I'm not necessarily fond. I get it, but I want to go a different direction. For you, how much of an influence did what your father did, what your brothers did, influence into how you made your decisions moving forward? Well, a lot of the decisions that were made for me as a young person, as, as like a kid, was basically environmental because my mother and father got divorced when I was seven. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was kind of living with my dad on the farm, my mum and dad on the farm. And then I lived with my mother in the city. And then you know, she ended up moving to Auckland and then she moved mm-hmm. from Auckland to somewhere else. And so I basically had nine schools throughout New Zealand when I was growing up. And so I was kind of like a product of continual adaption. So even though I had these grassroots at the farm, I, I just found myself moving all the time. My, mm-hmm. my mother passed away when I was 13. So then I had to go and live with my dad. And then this is where I kind of started encountering a little bit more about who my brothers were in that community, in that town. And I started playing rugby again. And it was pretty, pretty full on kind of way to grow up. So even though I had these real good core roots about who I was as a person in my family and how I saw them conduct themselves continually, I was very, very fortunate. They were kind of big personalities. Yeah. So I always got, one thing that's kind of very missing in today's culture is the art of storytelling. Agreed. And so, you know, like I used to hear stories about my brothers. No matter where I went, I would hear about them because they were they were pretty cool, man. Like, and so, and and I remember like being I was hanging out with a mate of mine when I moved to Tauranga, in, in the, I think I was nineteen or twenty, mm-hmm. and I was standing in the garage garage with him, and it was a night before a big game, and his uncle walked in. He looks at me, he goes, oh, familiar. And I was like, I don't know, bro, I haven't met you before. And, and then <laughs> this guy, oh, this is Theo Bennett. And he was like, Bennett, are you Warren's brother? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, got some stories about that guy. And, that's how I went. <laughs> and I was like, what? Just like out of nowhere, like the stories would find me. But let me, how much of an interaction did you actually have with, bro? I mean, I get from the stories and, and, uh, and of course it creates almost a legend. And obviously living with your mother and you having, Change obviously create uh, a bit of a um, uh, growth distance, uh, mm-hmm. give or take. But whenever you did end up coming back to living with your dad and 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 outside of the rugby club and the people around it, how much of an interaction did you have with your brothers directly as opposed to through hearsay through other people's experiences? Oh, uh, probably not enough, and not you know because you know they had their lives by that time. 
they were growing with young families and, yeah. so, you know, so they had commitments and, you know, they had mouths to feed and things that they wanted to settle for themselves. And I was fortunate that my dad was very, like much the vein of, um, you're creative for the world mm-hmm. and if you want to do something, you do it, you know? And I'm just yeah. like, okay. And sometimes they're like, Hey dad, can you drop me in town? Cause I got to meet my mates. And he'd be like, no, he goes, oh, I've been at work all day. I can't do it. And I'm like, all right, then see you when I get back. And my dad, <laughs> just walk out the door and start walking to town. And I mean, it used to be an hour and a half away. Like I'd walk in to meet my mates wow. and then I'd, then I'd walk home. It's just how I grew up. It was always very matter of fact, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Dude. I, I and, and I, I love that aspect because obviously it creates a build and, you know, as a person for me, you talked about having to move around a lot when you're younger, I had to move not as much as nine schools, but you know, I had to move around a lot, which, I loved how you said you become a child of adaption in that mm-hmm. where you have to be able to understand quickly the environment and how to be able to interact with it uh, in a notion. But I've also found that at the same time, it makes one very restless as they continue getting <laughs> older because you become so used to, you know, being able to be and being able to not just be in the places, but function in many places in a short period of time that staying past a certain limit starts to make uh, antsy might not be the right word, but it starts to make you uh, more ready for the next, for the next step. And I assume in a small town like that, again, that already has your reputation like that. I can't imagine that playing rugby in that and living in it and, and having these stories and basically having this, I, I guess a halo effect of family would make it easy to stay past a certain period of time. Add to that what your dad said of helping you to be a make it happen person. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things that contribute to that. Like um, my family calls me that like, just like the nomadic child. (laughs) But um, there's there's a lot of things that contribute to that nomadicity, as you could say. Um, Because after my mother died, I think I had a very pinnacle conversation with her. And the events leading up to her death were really traumatic for me. But the last conversation I had with her, she said to me, whatever you do, don't let anybody influence you and make sure you never give up on your dreams. Never let them tell you that you can't get what you dream for. And it stuck with me. It was like such a pinnacle, high emotive part of my life that it was something that I held on to, like I've held on to until now to dear life. And I've done things cross borders and taken huge risks. Um, and, and I mean, I mean, huge risks, not only, you know, with career wise, but with my life and, yeah. you know, with my stability and, and I, I, so I wanted to do this. So I'm going after it. And I wanted to be a coach at the Rio Olympics in 2016. And I found that out in 2011, that, that Brazil would be in the Olympics and automatically qualify. And the Brazilian mm-hmm. rugby union wouldn't kind of get back to me. So I was like, all right, I went. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I went to like in the middle of nowhere and started coaching. And, and you know, but it all, it all takes its toll. I think that's always affected my bottom line of high performance. Yeah. I think those risks at the same time might get me opportunities, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I've done the best that I could possibly do. Right. And now that I'm older, I kind of realize those things. And I've, I've, you know, I've worked for some fantastic teams and some fantastic environments, but was I fantastic and was I the best that I could possibly be? I don't think so. 
I think that there was something always lacking because of that ability, that, that moving around. Yeah. Um, however, it taught me so, so much. I think now I could enter any high performance unit mm. in the world and do really, really well. But I think, you know, even up to the last three years, and I, I work with the, the US Sevens girls and they were getting ready for the Olympics and I had some innovative things. But if it wasn't for those innovative things, I don't think I had the track record really to be able to to be able to really transfer that to being a real pinnacle part of success, right? So I'm I'm a huge realist. Like I look at myself really hard every single day. Yeah. And go, okay, I might be different, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean much more than that. Like you got to follow through. And 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 I can understand that factor. Again, it goes back to that how much you're able to sit in it, and while also simultaneously, whether it's in town or in industry. How much are you able to sit in it to be able to cultivate and develop at its fullest? And that's a tough one to do because of the time that it takes to do it. Before continuing on that, though, what, what was the first moment that you actually ended up leaving New Zealand um, to, to start working overseas or start your maybe your journey? I don't know if that was necessarily your journey start, but your first moment to go. Because, again, I, I can't get off the fact. Small town kid lived within a moving city. But it's in a small country, small town that's, by all intents and purposes, very remote <laughs> to everything else in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just, yeah, I, I'm always, oh, I'm just, it's, I guess it's attitude that's always fueled me and, and almost like a fearlessness. And so when I was, when I was 17, I got selected on a student exchange at high school. Mm-hmm. And one, guide, one guidance counselor told me, told my dad, like, there's no way that this kid should be going anywhere. He should stay and finish what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And the other one was going, just go. Like, let him go. He's, he's such an adaptable kid. And so I applied for Switzerland, the USA, and the <laughs> Netherlands, and I got rejected for all of those three. Oh. And they came back to me and they said, oh, but we have this opportunity in Brazil. And I was like, sweet, let's go. Oh, wow. And before wow. I knew it, here's a 17-year-old kid, you know, I got on a plane and and you got to you got to go back to the this is this is 1990. So and you're talking about like right after the that Brazilian dictatorship was just over, <laughs> and you're kind of just transitioning country. Yeah, wow. Man. And and like it was it was full on, eh? Like uh, like you imagine like a, a 17 uh, you know 17 year old kid that's only known New Zealand, and I got dropped off in in the middle of Brazil. Well, what part of Brazil did you end up going to first? Uh, it was a place called Caxias do Sul, Rio Grande do Sul, which is the last state right down on the base of Brazil. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah. It's 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 just six hours down. Six hours, yeah, just six hours over here from here. So yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. No, no, Ed, Ed, that's Ed, I I can understand. I can understand. That is farmland. That is yeah, farmland. yeah. And, <laughs> and like I got, yeah, we're like we went to Rio, and like the taxi drivers were like nuts, and and you know something happened with one of them because I went with a group. At, to start to get through customs and everything yeah and in that group a girl got taken to the side and we didn't see her for two hours we were like coming out and she was distraught she ended up going home a couple of weeks after that because it was it, there was all these things that happened really really fast when i was there the taxis were crazy there was like gunshots and stuff going on in the middle of the night we weren't allowed to use our glue like rio de janeiro at that time it was oh, yeah. just nuts i mean it was set the reputation of it for yeah, to yeah. this day, <laughs> to, yep. to this day, yeah. But you know, even within that, like 
that's a I mean, that's a massive it's it, it was I'm not gonna say it was a big culture shock going from the US to Brazil, just considering everything else. But going from New Zealand to Brazil and entering into that, for you, the that kind of a and this is before you're starting doing this with rugby, all right. We're just yeah. talking purely within it's the population. You know, how much of that began almost maybe a catalyst of how you how you learn to function in other countries and places? Because I can't imagine that I'm not going to use the word chaos, but the activity level of, of a place <laughs> like Brazil, even I'm a Nigerian as well. So whether uh-huh. it's Brazil, Nigeria, these are much more active than what a lot of these places and definitely I would assume more so than a, a place like New Zealand, let alone uh, um, the, the small town. Um, you know, how much did that actually end up being like maybe your base for how to deal with any other country that you ended up going to? I, I think it came down to there was a stage that I started seeing a girl in Brazil mm-hmm. and we were at a nightclub and then she, she like lived, I don't know, three or four blocks away from this nightclub. So I ended up walking her home because, you know, I'm the big tough guy. So I walked her home and then, and then I was just walking back. I got, I got assaulted by these two guys and, you know, they pulled a gun on me and then yeah, it just ended up in a big fist fight. Yeah. And then, and then I ended up not off, not, not, not coming off too good. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. And, and at that moment, that moment I thought it was done. I was done. I basically put the gun to the back of my head and said, take 10 steps count to 10 and you're dead and you know like i remember putting my hands at the back of my head like this yeah. and then walking away and i was just like i started counting to 10 and like in that 10 seconds or 10 steps and i was kind of like oh you know i said to my mum, i'll see you soon and just like yeah. i hope everybody forgives me for what's going on and whatever and either way like it's gonna be okay and i just took this big breath and i just re- felt this peace about everything yeah but then the shot never came and I got about 20 steps away. I stopped and turned around and these guys were running off. And I went back to the nightclub and they were just like, what happened to you? Like I was just like cut and bleeding and just like. Bro. And, and I think um, I suffered like a lot of PTSD after that for such, you know, for, for quite a long time. I have to imagine because there's, there's not a situation where you, you don't become highly alert from <laughs> a, your surroundings after that. Just on the fact that you like, I, I just, you, look, I, I, I'm a person who I uh, get much like you was I, I don't I don't worry about my environment too much, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll use an example like getting into a, a fender bender. Someone comes hit you from behind just randomly, and it doesn't hurt you. The car's fine for me. It didn't hurt, but from that point on, I'm been highly susceptible of anything that goes around me, whether it's driving, whether there people are going to the stop sign or whatever. I'm always now in this moment where it's just like. You just need to be under red alert. Like there's always a little bit of a red alert that's going on. It dims as time goes on, but it dims. And I, I assume that early stages, that PTSD was just, especially when your life is on the line. Oh yeah. Like 100%. Like in New Zealand, I was used to like getting in the fights every now and then on the rugby field. if not stand out for myself in high school or whatever, you know, like those, those things happen. Right. But um, to this degree, it was like a whole nother level. And I remember about two weeks after, after I recovered, because like, I was a bit, you know, I just stayed home. I didn't say much. I just mm. stayed home. Didn't really talk to anybody. I was like, come ask it. Then I got on a bus and I was going back into town because I had some people to meet and I didn't want to just suffer sitting at home the whole time. I just wanted right. to 
you know, get on with things. And I remember holding onto the railing inside of a bus and looking out the window. And I swear I saw the dude that assaulted me standing there with a woman and a baby. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And I just felt like I was going to pee my pants. Like wow. I was just like, got so scared. And like I rode the bus and missed my stop and went too far. I just did the whole circuit and got out of the bus and then went home because it just did this big circuit. So I just stayed on it the whole way, went inside, closed the door, and I just kind of sat on my bed. And I was like, that's freaky. Imagine if, you know, like what else could happen from now if he recognizes me, I recognize him. Right. Like, you know, what else could actually go wrong in a situation? Mm. And so, yeah, like it took, it took a lot of years to get over that. And I think I remember the specific day I was playing under 21s back in New Zealand after, after a bit of time gone by. And I was a bit shy of contact for some reason, like my, my ability to tackle like really, really dropped off and I became pretty flighty and just not keen. Yeah. And then I remember I, I, I was facing this big Islander guy and he was huge man. And he was running through everybody and, and, and just, it was, it was like the Jonah Lomu of the time kind of thing. Yeah. And I was like, ah, oh. and then I was like, what's the worst that's going to happen? I mean, you survived like, this. this yeah. Let me, let me go through your body into it. You, did you make the stop? <laughs> yeah, man. Like I, I smoked them. I, I, first time yeah. I ever tried outside in defense, like I had to change something and the coach wouldn't pull me off. We're already losing. And he goes, if I pull you off now, you, there's, there's no, there's no growth. You're just going to be yeah. the same. You know, because I said to him, I can come off because, like, I missed every tackle on the dude, man, in the first half. I was like, Psh. and he was like, you got to figure it out, man. Like, can't take this away from you. And I was like, all right, then let's, let's have a crack at it. So then I just changed my position. He got the ball and I smoked them. And then nice. <laughs> he lost the ball. We got it. We picked it. We got the only try of the match. And everybody was like, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it, it's not necessarily. Um, yeah, and that kind of changed the way I was with rugby, but then it kind of changed my narrative for life as well. Do tell. Because, I mean, I, I can't I, – well, actually, before you go, like, before before all of it, were you a religious person or or a, a spiritual person in, in that element? Just – I know New Zealand is, I think, Catholic country, more or less. <laughs> Well, religion in New Zealand is like truly um, conflicted because rugby is so powerful and horse racing I mean, was back in the day. And so like if, if the All Blacks were playing, nobody would be going to church. If there was rugby on Saturday, there was nothing going on. So it was like literally when we talk about religions in countries, New Zealand has one of the most staunch <laughs> religions of rugby in the world. And it was big, hard farmers and and and. Polynesians and Maori and, and right. it, it just it, it be, New Zealand became known because of rugby right so I, I don't I don't know how much you know about about the All Blacks and how that was all created and you know and how how impactful that was around the world but you know in, in the First World War they wanted to boost morale within one of the one of the camps in, in Egypt or so I think it was and they went out there decided to have this rugby match and all the different countries got together and played off and New Zealand won it yeah so then they invited New Zealand on the tour and then they went away and they won everything because, you know, at that time, New Zealand was had real hard immigrants, right? So right. we're talking Scottish and English and Irish and our big burly boys and some fast, hard men that had to work on the New Zealand farmlands to get that established. So it was only, you know, very, very close to that. And then with the world wars, so New Zealand come back beating England and like swiping them, winning all this, all of a sudden the world knew who New Zealand was. Yeah. 
You're so head that, into the map. <laughs> yeah, and then it just that, that just keep hammering away and hammering away, you know. So you know, it's everything's to do with culture and and how it how it was created. No, that no, that's true, and, and and it sets the rest the ripple effect that you you the way that the culture reshapes itself from that point on uh, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But um, so uh, so fair. So in that situation, so maybe before the religion was the spirituality, the, the belief is rugby. <laughs> the belief is that. But after a significant moment, and I obviously we're talking about jarring effect, young kid, first time, first time out the country, really, uh, uh, within this group, in this other country that is literally an exact opposite. You come back and obviously let's call it, you had yips of rugby. Like, how did, what was your your pool to continue on? Because this is also not a time period where therapy was exactly lauded in the world. Yeah. Unless you were considered crazy or, or, or there was something wrong in the family. So for you, what was it that you used to kind of help draw you back out? Was it the extreme focus into the rugby or was there something else that added to that? I think it was being like the the chameleon in different groups of people mm-hmm. and being super kind of expressive. Like, you know, I was involved in music and, and I was just like training all the time and I'd have different groups of friends. So I didn't really need to lean on my family or, you know, talk to anybody about any of it exactly. You know, I, I just, I, I, would, I would just, I would just like bounce around these groups yeah. And just be this chameleon. And then when I couldn't find it, I would make my community. Like nice. I would I would find something to start to gather people around me and then go. Nice. Nice. And so, you know, when it when it talks about like spirituality and things like that, I don't think I really entered that realm. However, after my mother died in a garage sale that was up the road, I found a book and it had a tiger on the front and it was called Taming the Tiger. And I was like, this is going to be great because I like tigers. And I was in the Kung Fu. And it, like, this is the 80s. Like, Bruce Lee was the man to me. And I was like, yeah, I like Bruce Lee. And I was like, wow, okay. So then I go home and I sit down. But this is not a bloody story about a tiger. It's talking about someone's brain or something. But me being me, who's like, just like, totally. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to finish this thing here. <laughs> yeah, man, I did. I got a dictionary. I looked up the words. I didn't understand. And I read it. And it was talking about taming the subconscious mind. Yeah. And I was 13. And I like, like. Uh, I had some pretty lonely times there because I got transplanted into a place I had no friends whatsoever. Right. And my dad would go to work and I'd be like, I'd go to school and come home and it'd be nothing. He'd be like, that's, that's a different level of, that's whenever, that's whenever life gets not quiet when it gets silent. And I I consider that to be very (laughs) different than just quiet. Quiet at least is just, it's dim, but you feel at least your environment when it's silent, it feels like nothing moves. And that is a different version of an empty that goes right there with, with, uh, with the players that I've coached in the past, like uh, especially in the last probably five years, I talk about the white wall and there's a white wall coming from up for us all. Like it's going to yeah. be there. And when you finish the tournament and you finish this and you get on the plane, you're going to hit the white wall. Like it's there. And then who are you when that hits? Man. Whew. I want to let that one sink. <laughs> let that one sink because that's real, uh, you know. Interesting, 
it's it's like super like those kind of experiences that I did have growing up really influenced how I look at coaching. Yeah. And, and that's what I want to kind of move into, you know, the beginning of your stages going to coaching. Obviously, as a player, you know, ad, I'm assuming admirable enough player. But again, weren't going to play for the All Blacks, weren't going to play for pro teams. What took you into that next stage for coaching? Was it just the nature of rugby being in the blood or was there something that you felt actually compelled you into it? Um, it was part of, I was doing a sport and recreation course in New Zealand. And a part of that was to do a coaching certificate and you have to like kind of find some people that you have to coach. Mm-hmm. And like I, I, I went to, um, I changed colleges at one stage and I built a rapport with some people there, the PE teachers and stuff. And mm-hmm. I said, look, you know, I've got to do this course. And they said, oh, we've got some like under, I think it was under 16s that we need a coach for. And I was like, sweet, I'll take them. And I started coaching them and I realized, hey, I'm actually okay with this. Like I yeah. kind of do okay. And we built up like such really good, unique friendships between the players and I. Because realistically, there wasn't much much difference. I was probably 21 maybe or 20. And So, this, know, these... was, so this was maybe about, about a year and a half after you got back from Brazil? Um, a year yeah. after you got back from Brazil, give or take? Yeah, and I really, really found my place with them. And I found like the authenticity that they had and their enthusiasm because we were the mighty ducks, like yeah. we were pretty bad. And then we got better and better the more we trained. And I was like, like I, the influences of my brothers when I was little. And there was a specific coach that I had in the under 16s for me personally. His name was Kevin Ormsby. And unfortunately, he, he got he, he, he got killed in an accident halfway through our season. And it left this thing inside me too, like – he was like one of the best men. Yeah, one of the best men that I've ever met. And he really, really gave me time. He could see that I was like super shy about some things. And after the death of my mother, it was like very, you know, I found like this kind of console and this strong, moldy man. And he, mm. you know, and, and yeah, I, I think after that really jolted how I looked at coaching. And so when I took these young guys on, I was like, like the part of me was a part of him, right? Right. And, and I represented a little bit of that. So I made sure that I didn't drop on that line of integrity. And and, and it just kind of like kept grow, growing. And I coached some touch rugby and then went back to rugby a little bit. And then I decided oh, I'm just going to dedicate myself into doing exercise science. So sports-specific training for athletes. Mm-hmm. And I did that really, really, really well at the time um, in kind of that mid-90s. And then I was an avid touch rugby player. <laughs> and, I, and I, I fractured my skull at 21 playing rugby, so I had to oh, kind of transition over for a while and just give my brain a rest. And right. so I started. <laughs> um, and then when I when I moved to Australia, I got fed up with touching New Zealand, so I went to Australia and played over there. And I was working in the gym, and a guy comes in. And he goes, "Oh, do you know much about rugby?" And I was like, "A little bit." And he goes, "Well, our our coach just walked out and t- has taken all the first and second grade players." And it's just like a nightmare at this club, but we really need a coach. And I was like, sweet. Wait, hold on. <laughs> okay. You're at the gym, you're random. And they're just like, Hey, you need a coach. Were they, were they... Yeah. And I was just like, you're already an awareness of a coach. Or they were just like, you're from New Zealand. Do you coach? Do you do rugby? Like, how does that work? Like, was there already a relationship and they found you like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, it, it, it makes sense in the terms of that I was always able to pull out information from people and relate to them. 
Gotcha. Because of that kind of like ability to Adapt. like basically having startups all the time. Right. So, yeah. you know, after you do a gym program for somebody, they get to know you and they want to do rugby specifics. So I'm like, okay, I'm giving them rugby specific stuff and that's all good. And then they're like, you know, a little bit about this. I'm like, yeah, a little bit. Have you coached? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like it just kind of flows on. And the opportunity came. I said, yes. And man, I took over. We lost 47 games in a row. God, dog. And we but, had. But that was also, again, a situation where the club was still in distress. So it was almost oh. like rebuilding culture in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Like we, 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 I learned so much about sticking to the process over, you know, like focusing on outcomes. The first game we lost was 125 to zero. And then the next round, that team came back and they beat us like 95 to 10 or 95 to five or something. And we had mm-hmm. the biggest, we had the biggest party in the changing room and they couldn't <laughs> believe it. We walked in there, we gave them beers and they were like, what are you doing? It's like, we kept you on a hundred. And like, the next time we played them, they got down to like 50 to 20. And then the third time that we played them, you know, the, the next season, yeah. like we're getting closer. The margins come down. And after 47 games, we won our first game in that tournament. And like we, we reinvented the culture and, and of that club. It, it just took such a long time to do, but it was worth it. Was that basis for you creating culture? Because I'm, I assume this is a regular theme based off of just the places that you just talked about coaching, whether it's Brazil, whether it's Australia, whether it's, it's New Zealand, like the idea of creating culture, was that just an affect of Hornsby or, or your, your friend Hornsby? Or was this, again, going back to these philosophies that you learned from wh- how your brother was treated in terms of storytelling to how you dealt with things in Brazil to adaptation? What was What ended up being your built concept of team culture? that you started to use as a core element moving forward? I became the head of the family. It gave me purpose and belonging. And it gave me an opportunity to look after the people that were around me. Yeah. And I met, I I met kindred spirits basically. Right. You know, young men that had a really, really strong warrior code about them that just wanted to play. And, and because I guess my authenticity towards that journey of going, you know, you are like, I've had, I had to go and pull the boys out from like getting arrested on a Friday night so they can play Saturday. Like, and, and at the point I couldn't control these guys, man. Like they were just <laughs> wild dudes. But when I started building, it was all the wild cards. Yeah. And so I was like, can't beat them. I join them. So then I'll be out just to make sure they didn't go to locks up. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you keep keep them corralled, not corralled in, but at least it it keeps a uh, an honest uh, gauge, middle gauge for everybody. Uh, I tell you the secret. You ready for it? Yes, let's go. Bacon and eggs for breakfast at my house if you want to come and play. That's legit. I yeah. actually so the boys will turn up. That makes the most sense. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we always talk about this culture of rugby, especially. When it comes to the networking, uh, not the network, I'm sorry, for, with the camaraderie of it. And it, it speaks a lot, again, to the to that home value, I like to say, that is felt. Where I feel like the strongest teams are the ones that there is a place to call home. Not necessarily like the pub, but there's a place where people feel like they can remove the world off their shoulders for this moment. 
Oh, absolutely, because there's something about like the like I, I talk about the warrior code a lot with you know, right. the, 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 the few people that I talk to at the moment. So, you know, the warrior code is really strong. What what that is is like having a strong warrior code is to be very adaptable and very clear minded in every kind of environment. And it, it's to be harmonious. So it's it's to have enough skills to make sure everything to make sure everything's it yeah and so it, and so what rugby basically does though is it puts a warrior in its place hmm. where you can't go thinking about yesterday and you can't go thinking about tomorrow you need to think about this present yeah. moment yeah and and in that flow state as such like people it generally saves lives like i've been yeah. heavily involved in brazilian jiu-jitsu now for like the last 10 years and apart from rugby i think jiu-jitsu has been one of the most core hugest developers that, that i've ever been on. like it's 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 so internalizing the journey is just amazing and i just recommend that every single person go and do it because <laughs> you're gonna you're, you're gonna get faced with so many barriers within yourself no i i heard the same thing with uh um with thai boxing thai kickboxing again because uh, you, you see it in the training where it just it pushes your it, it pushes your body to a different level because of the way that it gets presented. Like mm-hmm. I, there's the fighter way that we get here, but at home, in its home, the way that it's presented. I remember um, uh, um, a young lady from Canada who was living in Thailand who was doing this initially was telling me about it because um, I, I haven't personally done it myself. But it, again, it, creating that element of focusing you into your present moment to allow you to be able to have, I guess, maybe the most control in in your arena in that to have the most peace in that right because if you don't it's danger if you're in a fight if you're in the ring if you're in a match it's the most fight in that yeah well you think about when yeah when most injuries come from lack of attention a lack of lack of awareness of lack of focus lack of yeah yeah yeah. and so like it's always about if you really want to like you can imagine the injuries that we would have had if we were losing 125 nil and lost 47 games in a row I was I was the first aid guy. I, I you know I was strapping people's shoulders and ankles. We we went through more tape in in like one weekend than what clubs would go through in a year just to keep <laughs> the boys. Sometimes we'd turn up, we'd have thirteen players and the boys would play. But it is no, that. no subs, no subs, man. Like we 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 started like raw, like there was nothing. There was there was just like me and them, and it's like I put on the boots a couple of times. Wasn't that good? But I pulled on the boots a couple of times and got out there with the boys. But it it just, mate, there there is a place that people belong, and the world disappears. That's and that's a realist. And and while while on high like just we tip on high performance coaches like while high performance coaches at times try to put people through the ringer, um, and they try to break people down to see who they are don't really need to do that because the way the game is structured right now, the pressure of occasion, the pressure of performance, all these things now hold, yeah, they, they, they pressurize a person to reveal who they are eventually anyway. Yeah. And all you need to do is hold space and foresight. And which, where I'm saying is when I talked about the warrior code, like as a coach, you need to have a certain kind of code that you live by that keeps you grounded and when I talked earlier on about how, you know, my successes, I think I could have done a lot better 
at times I, I was very, very strong in my warrior code because I was probably closer to jujitsu when I was coaching. But the further mm. I got from jujitsu, the further away I got from that. So kind it's, of it's like on a personal pursuit, like you have to be a way of action. Do you, is that part of kind of also, is that part of the reason also why you also found yourself moving around so much? It was because I love the, the way that you call it, the personal pursuit. And and, for, and and if you can also kind of speak to the countries that you ended up coaching at um, in, in, in this time. But in that process of going from place to place to place and, and, and dealing with these, do you feel like you were trying to also find yourself in that and find a pursuit? And ironically, in the pursuit of finding self, it starts taking you away from your from your base a little bit. Yeah, I think I think that you, you don't really know who you are until you encounter difficulties. Like, I, I, I and I think that's like that's super injured, like how we view and our reaction to circumstance. Yeah, and and there's in the second chapter of Virtutus, my book, Virtutus says a line: "Circumstance is where a coward lays blame. Circumstance is where a coward lays blame." Because we can always say it's always this, it's always something that, it's always else. that. Exactly. Yeah, but it's always there is something that just happened. I need to be able to resolve that. I need to be able to look in that in a way so that I have that desired outcome, the best outcome possible, not necessarily for me, but for how I respond to the world and, and, and how I look at it, for example, because I'm empathetic towards this person or because, no, this person's taken advantage, so I need to stop that. Or blah, 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 blah. It just goes on like the list of things that you can justify yourself. Go a million miles. Obviously. There's a million reasons not to do something. There's there's only a few that will make you go do it. Which one do you yeah, want to, yeah. which side do you want to choose? And... Yeah, absolutely. So every time we come across something that's difficult, like Marcus Aurelius says, like um, the impediment action creates the action. Right. The obstacle is the way, right? So he was like, we, we, have, this lin- we have this linear thought process and we're taught that through sport business that this is how we go from a to b but i i firmly believe that this is life <laughs> right and it takes us around we, we can't get away from being ourselves we can't get away from our lessons as much as you want to run away from it right like it's it's having that ability to look at yourself in a, in a different way oh and i you know it was funny i i listened to this thing this was a uh it was an entrepreneurship podcast but there's something at the end of it that's really stood out, which was more of the, to the effect of, you know, we all have a level that we always kind of hit a ceiling on and we have a choice. You either can get to that level and stop. And while you might've been able to satisfy everything from below, uh, you'll never really feel the completion of it, but you can always just step away and say, Hey, I, I can go a different direction. Or you take the moment and you break through and you get to see how much more of the other side that you have, because once you've broken through that ceiling, it it opens up something else in you. I think it was to that effect. It was opening up something to that effect. But it, it goes back to that obstacle. We always have that. There's always that ceiling. I know for me, it's very normal for me. There's this always this thing that feels like you're you're not ready. You're not ready. You know, you hit it, and it's like I don't know why I'm not breaking it. Uh, let me see if I can go around it. No. Can't go around it. Is there another way for me to get to my objective without dealing with this? No. What do you eventually have to do? You have to take the obstacle because it really doesn't present another way for you. 
Uh, it's but once you know that you go through it, it almost feels like you're unstoppable to say the least. Yeah, like um, if you, we, we can take something like really like personal for me is like writing Virtutos, for example. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's it's pretty demanding, but you can beat yourself into submission about accepting who you are. And it's just like I never doubted for one moment that I wasn't a writer. Like right. as soon as I started, I was like, there cannot be room for doubt because the reader can sniff doubt out. Like, you know, like right. and I can I can sniff it out if I get too far away from who I am. And like sure enough, I failed in so many countless times with editors and with people beta readers and like getting feedback and it's like you, you, you're knocking against a brick wall like so many times so many times so many times but i think that life and rugby and everything around us it's always a measure of a bounce back it's always yeah. a measure about understanding your processes do you need more time do you need less time do you just need to hit it again what voices are you creating are you creating that just get up and go again oh yeah you know you, you, you've been you've been silly you've been dumb or is it it's okay mate get on your feet let's go again like right. it's it's nothing on the big scale of things this is just a little hiccup like h- how are your process your processes where do you get your bounce back from right and like i have a huge bounce back like from my I mean, conversation that's... to the next it's just like pfft. sweet let's go you know <laughs> i it, it, it's interesting because i always wonder if there is there's two sides to that um, because there's one side is the bounce back, which it always feels like the bounce back is let me, I know what the problem is, but I don't want to let the problem sit as a weight for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk for myself and, and, and I just want to get your thoughts on it. For me, it's, I, there's a problem exists. I can either sit in the problem or I let the problem lay off my shoulder and move on. Right. Mm-hmm. And go on to the next thing. So I can try and get, solve whatever the uh, solution that I'm trying to achieve. Right. But then there's this other side that I've started to think of, or started to realize where maybe there's an issue of not letting a problem sit enough where I'm not taking in the significance of what that problem provides. And it forces me to go, I'm thinking of more of how to do the solution that gets me to my point quickest as opposed to let me understand what my problem is so I can get to my solution that gives me the efficiency to it for you. Like, how do you see it on, on that? Like, do you see the issue on that or is it just like they both are one and the same kind of like, you got to roll your sleeves up and get to the bottom of your problems at times. But then sometimes you're facing with faced with problems that you don't really know the answers with and the, and the consequences can be kind of catastrophic. So, you know, you got to ask yourself, are you in the architecture of your problem or are you the architect of your problem? Like, where do you, where does your viewpoint sit and what's required? Word. Like, am I, should I sit back and just watch and see how I want to react and want to respond to this? Or is it like, okay, it's fisticuffs, man. Like I'm going at it with myself or I have to do this. I have to do that. Like uh, it's, I think it comes down to judgment about how you need to react to it. But the only way to have some kind of equal judgment is to have continual adversity. Right. And then if you're faced with that kind of adversity, because there's, there's two really successful people, people that go through a lot of adversity to get good experience, they become successful. Right. And, and then there's people that have such a well-nurtured background that haven't had much conflict seem to find themselves 
quite successful as well. And I'm not saying that people, um, success is always relative to what you want. I, I consider myself a very successful person, mm-hmm. but um, people right. wouldn't look at, you know, but maybe other people would look at me and, you know, like say, nah, he's not that successful. But like I, I died of your but uh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> I will say if you've got a chance to experience the world in a, in, in an upfront way versus simply being able to uh, hearsay, I, I will always consider that to be one that is successful because people experience, I, I do find to be a little bit of um, higher than simply financial, simply financial, because uh, being financially successful, financially successful alongside doing no real human experience is not success easily. well the the human brain is really nuts and true story and basically it's this like we are just specks in the universe here in 300 years and 400 years i, I doubt if anybody's ever gonna think about this podcast and we might think i'm gonna write oh, a book because yeah. i want to be you know like there's, there's there's nothing like the books that i write like you know like 700 years ago how many books went missing 400 see, years ago how many went missing how many identities went we're just specks we're gone we just but it, I don't know if that's, but here's the thing. I don't know if that's fully true though, because there's one thing that we can always say, and he even kind of spoke it to it when mm-hmm. he talked about the impact of New Zealand from World War One to what's happening now. I think the specifics might disappear. The the extreme detail, who is it from, what uh-huh. is the source, but the ripple effects of them do have an account because obviously through generational change, you share information, you combine information. It. it goes through and it starts to move from it a conscious element to an unconscious element. And so it's the, the like you said, the, nobody might remember Grow Rugby or they'll remember the Rugby uh-huh. Pod or whatever, but maybe the information that was taken from that or the perspective that was taken from that seeds into one person and that can changes or adds another aspect of how they perceive their life and that becomes straight away whether it's transfer information to a friend or uh-huh. to you know kids or anything like that you know yeah yeah there's 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 two ways of looking at it is what you're saying is it gets yeah. ingrained in your dna basically right it's it passed on and there's there's this like instinct of intuition and intelligence emotional intelligence and like deeper deeper intelligence of a human being beyond anything that they've experienced before right it's just right. in them right that's one way of looking at it and that's great and i've motivated and i've talked to people about that same philosophy and 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 i do agree with you that's great but there's also the other one which is the the we are like this big in the universe and Facts. something could happen and we're gone and True. so you know like there's there's our, our our brain is not to really really compute about the 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 minuscule minuscule speck we are in the universe like our brains can't handle handle it <laughs> true i mean look it, it's it's there's there's only so much uh, but i mean again from person to person that that is true but i guess that's also the good part that's what also allows you to either choose to either be in the moment or to yeah. worry so much about things that you can't control it provides a uh, a limitation um before we go I wanted to talk a little bit on Virtuitous um, and, and kind of get what was the motivation behind you writing the book? We've talked a lot about your philosophy, your characteristic, 
in that. I know we probably could have talked more rugby, but I'm not going to lie. I like your philosophy a lot more. And I just want to, I'm really interested in how you see the world. So uh, forgive me on that one, but you know, what, what was the motivation on Virtuitous and, and, and why you decided to write it? I was in lockdown in 2019 and I was sitting what? in the garage. Yeah. Like uh, for COVID. So I went back to, oh, okay. back to New Zealand because of circumstances. Yeah. I was sitting in my brother's garage and I had like two weeks of quarantine and then New Zealand went down on a harder lockdown. So mm -hmm. it ended up to be quite a long time <laughs> and I didn't want to come out with that, with nothing. I needed to choose something to keep me occupied. I, I had views on leadership development. I had views on coaching. I had views on all these things. Um, and, you know, the warrior code and my experiences. And I wanted to let it be released. And I hate talking about myself. <laughs> like, I don't hate it, but I do. Um, I talk about myself um, in a very reserved manner. Um, right. And I very New Zealand, by the way. Very yeah. New Zealander of yeah. and, and I would rather write about a third person. And then I had some kind of conflicted views about value systems and like how they create people. And I liked the warrior code aspect. And I created like a virtue system that I thought that would be very interesting to explore. And virtutus, which means virtuous in Latin, um, was a way for me to explore these things at the same time dealing with like leadership development issues and things like that. And he's, he's very much a failed leader and it's not a hero's journey. So don't go expecting any, no. any, any pretty stuff. Cause it's pretty, pretty raw. <laughs> it, it, it sounds, and, and forgive me if it's not the exact, but it sounds very Sophie's choice in a, in a lot of ways uh, from, from how you explain it. Um, um, I haven't read Sophie's choice, but yeah, if she gets nailed, all the time. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's... <laughs> and, 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 and by nailed, I mean, is she is, is continually it's just constantly within... yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah yep. exactly. No, from, from your, as you put it in, was this more so obviously, like you said, you don't talk about yourself directly, but for you, was this one where it, it felt like this was your kind of a dump of your knowledge, a dump of your experiences, albeit through the eyes of another person, but kind of a culmination of everything that you've been going through, being able to put it into this writing format and shape it into something that uh, maybe become very manual ask for somebody while also trying to maybe create a perspective. <laughs> You're a smart guy, a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Um, mate, it's, it's, yeah, it's basically Virtutos as a trilogy and with each trilogy, there's a manual that goes with it. Nice. And I wanted to create a character that I could destroy and nice. so that I can help, you know, create epiphanies and evolution in this guy after he's lost everything. And then finally at the last minute when he kind of gets it, it's kind of too late, but it's, it's the whole journey. It's the rebuilding process. It's, you know, the, the first volume is basically, you know, failed leadership decisions one on top of the other um it's it's heart-wrenching and it's cool it's gripping <laughs> <laughs> oh i love it but i love that it, it, look people it, there's a reason why dr drama is significant and and even in the darkness you find light so to be able to have that kind of element where you're creating a world that 
is obscured to say the least. That's where you find it goes back to your to, to as you said, it is through the obstacles that you end up finding out the most of who you are. And being able to get that element and show the pounding creating just it, it, I just I take it as it, it gives you I guess the epiphanies for the yeah, reader yeah. and for the character themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Because the Virtutus, the main character, is not the smartest guy. He's yeah. he's good at one particular thing. He's a good warrior and he's a good tactician, but he's not the most smartest guy in the room. There's always the people around him that educate him, that give him the different things to think about that influence him. And that's where he becomes a really, really good learner by the end of the day. And as you were writing, and this will be the last question to let you go, but as you were writing it, what was it that you felt, did you reveal about yourself in it? Because I know, especially whenever you start to write honestly, vulnerably in these elements, uh, sometimes it can bring back stuff that you may have either put to the side or maybe forgotten altogether, or maybe just wasn't something that you thought about and even in general. Was there anything that you yourself learned from your your process of writing this book and and the ultimate completion of it? I don't think I could ever be as courageous as him. And for all the, the courage and the bravery and the skill sets that he has, when it comes down to the crunch, it helped me understand how far away from that I am. And it sets a bar really, really high for me personally about how I would conduct myself in certain situations. And that I'm nowhere near as good as what he is, even though he's already really flawed. That's nice. That's nice. Look, I can't think of a better way to be able to uh, let us go. Theo, where can people find you? Um, you'll never find me, but you can find the book <laughs> on... Um, you can, you can, you where can, can people find out more about Virtuitous? Vir- yeah, just, yeah. just go to Amazon Books and then put in Virtuitous and it'll pop up there. It's um it's it's done really really well. I got to Amazon. It got number one in its category for like four days. Beat out Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Like it did really really good, and it's floating in between the top in the top ten now. So it just kind of sits there and it's humming away. And the goal is to keep it there. But um yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see. It's done, it's done really well for itself, and I'm pretty proud of it. So. Man, I'm I'm happy to hear that. Theo, look, I'm gonna be honest with you. We're gonna have to do more because I, I think next time we actually have to talk about more of your coaching journey. Uh, but right now, we <laughs> I am so happy that we had a chance to just be able to talk the philosophy and get to actually know a lot more of your story. And and, and it, it, I, I learned a lot from this, so I definitely appreciate you uh, again taking the time to, to just be here. Oh, mate, I got nothing but gratitude for you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yo, Theo, my man, bro, I appreciate you coming through. Man, great conversation. Can't wait till the next time we get a chance to talk. And y'all, by all means, please, please check out some of our other podcasts. Definitely keep looking in Rugby Inc. all the time. Uh, Last week, we had the great...
We had the great Tito Miranda, head coach for Howard University Men. Uh, before that, we had Adam Hughes, the author of This Is Rugby, The Story, Culture, and Future of American Rugby. Great book. Of course, mentioned Catherine Aversanu. We had Danny Lamb. Uh, we had Kundarasiki, promoter Cassette Shirin Ganji, uh, Daniel Davalier, some amazing guests. Even going back to our past, Jen Salomon, who's over at representing for Mexico at the Rand Sevens. Uh, we had Cody Melfi, Olympic, and was over in uh, uh, um, Hong Kong with for USA Seven with the USA Sevens team. Uh, Maria Thomas, president for Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, Phaedra Knight, Squidge Rugby, Robbie Owens, and so much more. Definitely, definitely want to check out what we have here on the podcast. It is some great guests, great conversations. Learn more. It is rugby, but it's not just all rugby because it is all opportunity. And of course, in opportunity, it is the most important that I want you to know that I hope that you are happy i hope that you are healthy and i hope that you know that you know that you are highly favored until next time y'all cheers